Welcome to Uncultured Bias Podcast. I'm your host, Kamara Williams. On our show, we say that culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is just another way to say discovered. We are uncultured, we are biased, and we are black. Thank you for continuing to support this program. Um, we are just rolling along. And, uh, you know, if you have supported on any format of Spotify, Apple, or my website, much appreciation. Thank you so much. Um, if you are on Apple, I'd ask that you leave a comment on the episode and rate it. Uh, that is how Apple uses its algorithms to evaluate uh, whether or not a, a, a podcast or an episode is reaching its audience and what kind of impact it's having. So if you're doing so, thank you so much. If not, um, please do so. Um, and also we ask that for those who have been listening to share it, share this podcast with everybody because Obviously, we don't want to be the best kept secret, so we want everybody to continue to support this program, but also to share it with their friends, uh, let them know what's going on, and tell them that, hey, this is a great new podcast that's having some different content. We try to deliver something different every week, and so if you are doing that, much love. If you haven't done so, we just ask that you do that. Um, I thank you so much for the support, and you know, we're going to continue to rock out. So, with that being said... Um, also, if you haven't done so, please go on to KamaraWilliams.com. Check out our newest blog. We try to uh, update that blog site um, with newer content, not only just with the with the podcast, but also with written blogs that may tie into the podcast or just may uh, delve into a subject that was um, more topical in that re- recent week. So uh, continue to do that as well. All right. This week's podcast, we're going to be introducing the subject of black history. I, you know, might just do this throughout the course of the year, but I couldn't think of a better time to do it, obviously, during than during Black History Month. And, you know, with that, I wanted to uh, bring on uh, my uh, history professor, uh, Dr. Pearson. Dr. Pearson, are you here? I'm here. All right. Welcome to the Uncultured Bias Podcast, as we tend to do with people who are first-time guests. We want to give them a round of applause. So, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, you're like, okay. Um, Dr. Never Pearson, get that in the classroom. <laughs> you never got that in the classroom. <laughs> so the, the thing is, with Dr. Pearson and I, um, we obviously go back uh, a long time. But little fun history fact that I was the best man in your wedding. And, That's right. And that is just to well, the, technically second best, but yeah, you know. yeah, second best, right, right, second best because you were the best person, right? Um, so, <laughs> and I would say to the crowd listening, that is how phenomenal of a student I was in. I was a student in your class. I would like to say that I was the best student you've ever had, and we're going to leave it at that. We don't. Need, we can just cut the podcast off right there. We don't have to add your commentary on whether or not that's true or not. Well, you did say opinions were important, right? <laughs> opinions, yes, but I think that's more of a fact. But you know, you don't have to. You don't have to give your opinion on anything. But I'm just going to say that's a fact that I was the greatest student you've ever had. And thus, the reason why we are close to this day. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, how have you been? How's retirement? 
Uh, retirement is good. I do not miss the grading. I, I miss the banter and the, the discussion and you know talking, but uh, grading is <laughs> the grading is deflating. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't miss that part. And with all this online and COVID, um, yeah, I got to say that uh, I, I can't. I, I can't see myself getting back in the game there right away. Yeah. I mean, I listen. First of all, Doctor Prison is, is calling all the way from Sacramento, California. Obviously, this is where I went to school at. So, um, but yeah, I could see that, especially California being on lockdown so much. It's it's vastly different than Florida. You know, as far yeah, as yeah, I mean, through spring, the uh, colleges out here are still doing uh, the virtual stuff, and that, that just really takes away from sort of the spontaneity of you know, topics and getting, getting the depth to it, you know, it becomes sort of just words on a page or on the screen rather than that discussive element. But that's the fun part of teaching. Yeah. The, the lack of engagement, right. It's hard to do right, so right. with everybody yeah. just um, virtual or whatnot. So yeah, the immediacy, I mean, you can go back and forth via, you know, discussion board, but it's not immediate. It's, and it sort of lacks that passion. And people tend to tune out, especially with the subject like history. I mean, it can tend to be like just, you know, malaise or whatnot. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, it can tend to be something like a cricket, like, you know, when you're just. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and the, and the worst part, I think, is, uh, you know, the, you don't know if they're tuned out or not. If in class, you can tell. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe call somebody on it, but online you don't want to assume it might be that they just really didn't understand it or didn't know and it's just uh it's just a harder interchange yeah and i did have eight weeks uh as though i was my last semester was that spring semester a year ago mm-hmm. and so we had about seven weeks of instruction face to face and then boom the next week they're telling us everybody's gone and you got to do it online. So I finished up the semester, sort of. I wasn't prepared for that. I had to do it on the fly. Uh, but I got a little exposure to it and it was, it was rough for me. <laughs> yeah. So I think what, I, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here. I didn't really um, let everybody know you're a history professor, but uh, tell everybody, or I'll just say, like you are um, specialized in African-American and just African history. Um, and that is where your bailiwick is. That is where you've made your um, profession or as far as your teaching. And, um, I think you were, te- you've been doing it for how, how many years were, were you a history, uh, African-American history? Well, 25 years here in Sacramento. And then of course my graduate school. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. Worked before that. So you have extensive history on that. So. With that being said, let's delve right into the discussion. Um, I want to start with, because it's such a vast, I know when I talked to you, it was such a vast subject of black history, right? What is black right. history? Yeah. And, you know, I guess, we do we want to start in the concept? Of, do you have a theoretical concept of what exactly is black history? Or do you just want to delve into something more subject specific? Well, two Two parts to approach. I think when you approached me about this and uh, looking at your title of your podcast, you know, on culture bias, is that 
one of my key things to start off my uh, early African-American history class is to basically get more people a positive image of what Africa was and is. Because I think a lot of what we take out of this whole study, well, you know, why, why should I know anything about Africa? It's a place that is of no interest. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing happens there. There's, you know, there's this sort of negativity that's come down to the standard history uh, over the years. So I, I thought at least we should approach a couple of quick things just basically on why Africa is not the way that it's oftentimes presented. And the basic point, which I'm sure you know, is that, you know, all of humankind starts on the continent of Africa. Yeah. yeah. And there have been questions about that and certain people who want to try to dispute that, but more and more the evidence. And it, and it doesn't have to be, um, you know, going against your beliefs because biblical scholars now look for the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. somewhere on the continent of Africa usually along somewhere in the neighborhood of the Nile River. Yeah. Science, the oldest fossils that, that exist that we know of are on the continent of Africa. Uh, archaeology, all of those kind of studies. So, you know, if people get to that from that starting point, is then why is Africa always thought of as behind or backward or second best? Hmm. Because if you have an origin, then any other first you want to talk about seems to line up but you have to actually look there first yeah, yeah. that makes sense yeah that, definitely so let's let's delve yeah. into that um african history is there are, are there any particular civilizations that you think are just are not heavily highlighted but are just integral parts of this entire framework of black history well because of the you know quick kind of interest in what happened in the United States in terms of black history. Mm-hmm. I tend to uh, not have a lot of time to dwell on the continent of Africa, but just sort of build up, as I said, and a little more extensive than what we're talking about here, that if you want to talk about origins and the setup of things, you have to deal with the Nile River and then Egypt, which is usually included in the pantheon of places of early civilization strong foundations or what have you. But they follow patterns, essentially, of small towns or villages then grow into larger entities of collective people and then eventually into a kingdom or an empire. So fairly quickly, I have to jump to West Africa because that's where the origin of people that ended up in the Americas, Mm. but they follow the same pattern. Mm -hmm. And in West Africa, it's the Niger River, uh, not as big as the Nile, but has many of the same attributes. You need water to survive. That's where the biggest cities, the centers of kingdoms, the greatest amounts of power and wealth developed along the Niger River. And through historical studies more recently, not long time, is there's clear evidence that significant kingdoms in West Africa were <clears throat> well in place by the time the Europeans showed up along the west coast of Africa. And then the point that I try to make sure people think about is Europeans didn't go to Africa because they were stronger. They went there because they needed or wanted things that they had heard about over a period of time. Mm -hmm. 
and they were attempting to improve themselves by going to a place that needed uh, or, or that they needed to try to uh, move themselves forward. Mm-hmm. So let me let me test your history memory now since oh, you're such God. a good student. God. <laughs> uh, just d- in general. Okay, so around... <laughs> this is 13, not what we agreed 13. on, by the way. This is not what we agreed on. <laughs> oh, sure. This is an easy one. Okay. All right. All right. That, that around 1300, okay. which is uh, CE, common era, right? So we're using our, uh, the traditional calendar. Mm-hmm. What was going on in Europe? 1300. Remember, I, would say, I would say the 1300s, that's the 12th century. No, 14th century. That's yeah. 14th century Europe. I mean, was that the Dark Ages, I would say? There you go. Okay. All right. Yeah. Dark Ages, Middle Ages. Yeah. The plague, you know, whatever you want. I mean, right. Europe was, was not doing well. Right. So there's multiple reasons there. In other words, why why would Europeans be looking to improve themselves? Well, this is a very difficult time. They had actually gone backwards from, uh, you know, some of the advances they'd made even up to that point in time. Now, we've left out a ton of history before that. We don't have time. Mm-hmm. So my point well, we got, is we got that, we can go deep into it. I, I mean, you could, I mean, you could get into your bag, Professor. I don't want, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, well, you know, we'll just ask you questions. But like I'm saying, I just want to kind of get people to start thinking about that. If we have this idea that origins of mankind up to the development of the kingdom, Africa in 1300 had one of its most famous emperors or kings in West Africa. Again, I'm sure you remember a guy by the name called Mansa Musa. Right. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, because of the power and the wealth and the success of the kingdom, that Mansa Musa, which is the kingdom of Mali, yeah. there are people today who try to make him out as, you know, this is the wealthiest per- person or ruler that ever existed. Now, since it's hard to compare over centuries, yeah. let's just say he's, he's way up there. Right. All right. Uh, we don't have to make the establishment of the idea, at least in my view. <clears throat> so this is an individual that was able to make his fame and wealth so widely known, the Europeans decided they needed to head south. To see it for themselves. Yeah. To try to find out or to trade or to extract something that would benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? Meaning that Africa was pretty darn advanced. A couple quick examples here. So the first is going to be is that when when uh, we talk about how do the Europeans find these things out, trade has been a common human practice going way, way back, and it's helped you know, people learn about other places and exchange of goods and different materials. And the most notable thing that came out of West Africa and had been for actually several centuries was gold. So, Would you say gold and spices, though? Well, gold first, because that that was more exciting. They eventually found the spices as well, but, you know, gold is what makes people like Europeans excited. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're greedy buggers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Okay. So, going quick, quick, quick pot. What, what makes gold valuable? What makes gold valuable? Yeah. Ooh, that's a... Ooh, I mean... What, what makes gold worth so much? 
It's just rarity. It's a rare metal. I don't know. Okay. It's, it's rare and people want it. Right. In other words, it has no intrinsic value of its own. Okay. Right, right, right. And it, it's been shown and, and through studies that there's a significant amount of gold in West Africa. Mm. And it was controlled by this Mansamusa at the time or the king. But in trade, it would change hands multiple times, and eventually, after multiple exchanges of trade, gold would make its way to Europe. Right. Right. Therefore, you're a business guy. Is the gold more valuable by the time it gets to Europe or less? It's more valuable because it's a rare, it's a rare Exactly, object. right? The more time, every time you exchange, you expect that somebody wants to extract a little more higher value. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a bit more costly, but it's still intriguing. So, again, short version here, is that Europeans got it in their heads. Why can't we find the source of the gold? Why couldn't we, you know, cut out all the middlemen in between and build ourselves up more rapidly? And that was the real trigger for them to go exploration farther south, following the coast of Africa, until eventually got they got down to uh, closer to the origin, let's say. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, to that end, the very first European fort that lasted long enough to be able to be excavated was called Elmina. Mm-hmm. And Elmina in Spanish is called the mine. Mm-hmm. So that whole story is basically to say Europeans didn't go, uh, let's Let's sail down to West Africa and steal some slaves. Mm-hmm. That was not their interest. That that ended up being a result or a consequence of that trip, but it wasn't why they went. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. No, I mean, and to that end, we're back again. Get back again, just to reemphasize the point of all of this, is to say that Africans had established themselves. They had wealth. They had power. They had kingdoms. And they are going to, uh, over time, have all of these things extracted by various means. And people look at today and go, oh, Africa doesn't have much of anything. Where at one point in time, it was the center. It was the place. It was the destination place. So let me let me ask you right. here, um, because I know we talked about Mali, which is in um, uh, North Africa. Um, sorry, someone was calling me. <laughs> I mean, Mali was in Northwest Africa. Uh, the Kingdom of Timbuktu. Now, yeah, okay, it was a city in one in those larger kingdoms. Yeah, yes, right. Uh, I've always felt it was it, first of all, it had the world's most advanced, or at the time, in one of the world's most not advanced, but uh, well, highly regarded libraries. And yeah. So I, at the time, the Kingdom of Timbuktu, Europe was still trying to figure itself out um, as far as education. I think we're still in the Dark Ages at this point, the Middle Ages. Am, am I right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And so at that time, they Europeans used to come down to the Kingdom of Tim, Timbuktu in Mali and um, and try to get some education or get a learned experience. So now you, it's interesting because you have at this time, um, 
you have Manza Musa, you're kind of getting the theme here, right? First, it's, it's this precious gold that's in Mali, the Mali region. And then, and then, and then uh, within the Mali Empire, also the kingdom of Timbuktu also was a, uh, was a, uh, an empire that flourished. Um, I think it's in around that same time, 13th to 15th century, whatnot. Um, high trading post, whatnot. But it's in that trade, European travelers tended to find out it was a highly educated center. Uh, it was a center of education for right. a, a large, for, for the world. People from as far as uh, Asia would come to uh, Timbuktu to, to learn and and be enraptured in their libraries. Am, am I right about that? Um, eventually. A quick correction is that the Europeans really were not, not interested in such things like education. They, they, they were just pretty greedy for the most part. And there's pretty good evidence that says that no white European ever entered the interior of Africa, you know, until the 17 or 1800s. Mm. Um, they, it, Africa was just not a healthy place for them. One, because by then, most of the people in, on the continent of Africa understood that they were exploitive and they were easy to see. Mm-hmm. They stood out. And secondly, is that the tropical diseases and climate didn't, didn't uh, do well for the Europeans. So they really didn't go to like universities and they didn't go to the centers of the kingdom, but they could extract from the coast of Africa mm-hmm. things that would make their way out to the ghost from those, from those centers. So, um, you know, they, they benefited from those types of things, but they did not participate, shall we say, in the centers of activity. Right. 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 So another quick little story, if I may. Oh, please. That yeah. One of the one of the ways in which they got even more and better information is that by the time of Mansa Musa, uh, Islam had spread throughout yeah. much of uh, um, northern Africa. And the kingdom of Mali had accepted Islam as their primary religion. Yeah. And therefore, Mansa Musa is the first West African who did what all good Muslims are supposed to do. To the trek, yeah. yeah. Which is? He did, he did his, he did his trek. Um, from, yeah, do, 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 do the Hajj, right? Do the Hajj, yeah. Do the yeah. trek to Mecca, yeah. which is in Asia. Yeah. So, again, this is documented through uh, records from this trip because this is a emperor, a ruler. By the way, Mansa is uh, the name for the ruler. It's not his personal name, right? The Mansa is like an emperor, a pharaoh, yeah. a sultan, king. It's, yeah. Mansa is just, he was like, I believe, the 10th Mansa of Mali. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So see people don't even know. Uh, so hold, hold up, let's 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 yeah. um, let's, uh, uh, let's, let's stay on that because a lot of people they keep using it as a a tribute to one particular person, but it's yeah. a title, you know, and so yeah, a lot of people right, don't exactly. don't understand, you know, the significance of that and why you know his his name meant was not his name was not meant to Musa. Um, I, I is it, it was a start with a K. I don't know. Uh, uh, I his, his name. Which, anyway. which name? No, I'm saying the, 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 
the title of Ansem Musa is is a pharaoh, but I forget the actual title of the uh, of the um, person who they who they tend to tribute as the title of Mansa Musa. Or Musa. No, well, Musa, Musa. Mansa, Mansa is the title. Mansa is the title, know, right. And Musa, right. yeah, Musa is, is his name, right. But I thought he was right. also called, um, um, let me look it up here. Yes, starts with a K, Can Can, so, or Musa. So his, Mansa is the title, but it was also called, yeah, he's also named uh, um, Can Can, uh, Musa or Can Can, but it's, uh, um, anyway, that's just neither here nor there, but keep going. Sorry, didn't want yeah. to kill your flow. So the another way in which really kind of triggered this whole European exploration was that Sansamusa on his trek, he takes an entourage of thousands of people, loads up camels with gold, you know, um, brings along educational expertise, and he's taking this caravan across North Africa, along the Mediterranean, and eventually all the way down to Mecca. Now, this is a trip that's going to take him over three years right? in terms of, you know, they're, they're moving, what, 20, 30 miles a day. Right. It's, it's stipulated that they have to set up, you know, a place for the mansa to sleep every night. Yeah. You know, he's a mansa. He's not going to just throw up a quick tent. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So this is a slow-moving caravan, and people along the way are going to see this traveling show. Mm-hmm. And Mansa is very generous. He pays gold and jewelry and all kinds of things along the way. And in fact, it's estimated yeah. that he left so much gold in the wake of this trip that it depreciated the value of gold along the Mediterranean for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. Again, people that are on the receiving end of this who don't have this, and by the way, at least to my knowledge, there's never been a gold rush in Europe. No. Right? They, don't, they don't have this stuff. So this, this is going to pique their interest, right, of trying to access. Here's somebody who's like giving, giving away gold like it's nothing. Right. Right. And I keep thinking of these things along the way very briefly. Um, <clears throat> one of the points, when I'm going a little slower that I point out is that in Mali is that oftentimes they traded an ounce of salt for an ounce of gold mm. as part of trade. Con- right? Yeah. And you've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. Because you need salt to live. Yeah. And to live, to, to preserve, to, for food. To, yeah. it, it, it was a, it was an, an indelible spice within, right. um, just period, not just in Africa and Asia, but period. It's it's one of those things where you could not live without salt, right. especially in the Sahara, right? And in in Europe, yeah. when, Sahara with with such the um, harsh environment of the, the heat, and in the Europe where it was a frigid, the frigid temperatures, and they didn't have a refrigeration system, so they had to salt yeah. a lot of the food. Correct. So when we talked again about value, is yeah. what you need. And in uh, the continent, or the kingdom of Mali, salt was as valued as gold because they had plenty of gold. Yeah. But in areas that were on the extremities, you know, this gold thing was the real trigger. Mm-hmm. And this trek to Mecca with this excessive amount of gold 
and other wealth that uh, Mansamusa leaves in his wake also inspires this idea that we need to get closer to the source, yeah. right? And to that end, we know that in the, by the early 1400s, Portugal specifically began this exploration, which again follows in the wake of all this stuff that I keep throwing in here about Mansamusa. Right, that gets them going, and it, it takes it takes decades for them to go a little farther, go a little farther, and if they don't die and they return, then the next person can build on that. So it's it's not going to happen like we think of today. It's like, oh, we'll just travel, you know, thousands of miles away. Yeah, this is a this is an age of uns- unsureness, and it's going to take a little bit while. But once they get there, as I mentioned, they can't just grab and take whatever they need because they really are not in a position of strength. And what they discover is the Africans are pretty darn clever traders. They've been doing this for centuries. And so instead of getting a better deal, they've made it so obvious that they're interested in something like gold. They don't really have what's necessary to trade of equal value and they're not getting everything that they want immediately. Okay. Mm -hmm. And to that end, they have to like hang around because you're not going to go back with just a couple of nuggets or a couple of little small things. But because of the tropics, being on the uh, mainland of Africa doesn't work really well for them. First of all, they're outnumbered. Right. Right. And secondly, again, as I mentioned about the health, so they usually tried to set up encampments on little islands that were very close to the mainland, but they were breezier and a little healthier, and they didn't have to worry about going to sleep and you know waking up surrounded by uh, black people. Right. So you talking <laughs> about islands like the Cape, up to Cape Verde? And all yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Cape Verde, Madeiras, and yeah. then even some smaller ones closer by. Yeah. And then that's where the next big trigger takes place because on those islands. They discover sugarcane mm. or sugar. Mm. So that's it. So I didn't I even did. know. So this is fa- that's fascinating. Sugar was not a staple within the European diet until they got to yeah, not a, not a staple. There were there were small places along the Mediterranean that had you know a type of sugarcane and growth, but. Yeah. You know, Quality-wise, I mean, it, it's like saying, okay, there's a sugar uh, uh, plantation in Florida and one in Jamaica. Yeah. Which one's better? Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the quality, the quality, the quality yeah. makes a difference. Right, right, right. And to that end, sugar is the bigger story of slavery for places like the United States, mm-hmm. not because sugar uh, is grown in the United States, but sugar makes the transition from the hunt for gold and then the hunt for labor to work on plantations like sugar. Yeah. That's what we, okay. call, that's what we call a segue, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, right. So, yeah. again, basic question again. We don't really know of plantations in Africa. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right. European plantation. Right. Meaning that if you're really thinking about cost effectiveness, mm-hmm. sugarcane already grows in Africa. The 
black people who end up being identified as slaves are in Africa, why not just do it there? So we've already determined the answer. There, the white people are outnumbered, mm-hmm. and they also do not do well health-wise in those tropical areas. And so they can't really enslave that particular population. But it's important to know that the idea for sugar and the growing of sugar is, is started. But then you have to do the little context of time, which, you know, some people would call it the grace of God. If you're, you know, uh, of African descent, then it was the worst thing that ever happened. And timing. Because at the end of 1400, and as the little poem goes, in 1492, <laughs> uh, you know, well, first yep. of all, first of all, um, I think history has been unkind to Columbus, and that's and I believe that's great because as we've gone to realize that he's traversed the ocean blue in search of India. <laughs> yeah, he's never even t- touched set foot in the United States um, or in continent no. of America, right? Um, but but he brought the idea of cross Atlantic travel, right? Right, yeah. And with, he brought a lot of he brought more than an idea. He brought the plague of disease yeah. and pillage. But but it's really it's really less about Columbus than it is about the timing. Yeah, right. That you have in the same century, the first Europeans go to Europe. They first discovered that you need. Or, or you can make a lot of money by planting something like sugar. You can't really do it on the location where you find it. But now suddenly you find this ability to find similar climate. And as they see it, wide open spaces, unclaimed territory that they can plant their little European flag and go, this is ours which they didn't do at that point in time mm-hmm. on the continent of Africa. So let's, because I don't want to, I don't want to rush through this. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the middle passage. And well, okay, let me, let me add one more step before we get to the middle passage. That's, okay. that's, that's an important topic, but, okay. but the, again, in terms, in terms of the process, to where we now talk about Atlantic slavery mm-hmm. is that we oftentimes jump past the fact that, once again, cost-effective-wise, the Europeans, didn't matter which ones, all of them, at some point tried to enslave the indigenous people they ran into the America, the Indians. Yeah. But it didn't work mm-hmm. for somewhat the same reasons that we described in Africa. They, they didn't understand the land, and it wasn't there. It, they were outnumbered. Um, yeah, they were outnumbered. Yeah, and so unless you could enslave every last single one of them, you're not going to be able to control that work population because humans in general do not like the idea of constantly being forced to do things against their will. Right? Nobody who would have thunk it signs up and <laughs> signs up to be a slave because it's fun. Right. Okay, but. At that point, that's when you find that the Europeans start putting all these little pieces together and go, 
wow, we see the same climate, we see the same opportunities, and we already know where people have the knowledge and the skills to do this. If we could just get them to this, quote unquote, new claimed territory in the Americas. And bonus, we know that if there's a black person running around in a place that's not their homeland, then we're more on an equal footing and we can probably determine that we brought those people here to do work for us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, does that make all linking together? It's all linking together. Um, so at my point in class, which is tongue in cheek, obviously, is that for Europeans, they learned out it's always uh, more, uh, more beneficial to enslave somebody outside of their homeland. To import. Yeah, import the yep. product. The product right. the product being black bodies. Yeah. And then, so it started off as a trickle, mm-hmm. but as we know, over centuries, the demand grew, the numbers grew, and the impact on uh, Africa uh, is going to be worse and worse. So let me ask you, why, why you know, there, there's a spot in, in Ghana called the Point of No Return. Um, yeah. I, I think you've visited there once. Yeah, the one of them. It, it's a generic term. Basically, it's whatever the yeah. export door is on any fort along that coast, uh, the west coast of Africa. Okay, because I was going to ask, that. you know, what, you know, in the Cote d'Ivoire, um, Ghana, um, the, the, the um, country of Benin, um, I think in, was there was there a port as well in Senegal? Omar? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, pretty much from uh, you know the outer point of the Gambia River, mm-hmm. uh, all the way down uh, along the Congo. Even there were um, ports and, and points of no return for extraction of slaves because we know that a lot of the slaves that ended up in the Americas were from Angola. Yeah. Okay. Which is pretty far south. Yeah, I, 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 I think I read. Yeah, in goal. Yeah, and that's that's what southern southeast but it, Africa. But again, then you south, get southwest, into southwest it's, southwest Africa, yeah. it's different still because there's there's places on on the African that used to be always known. The one we know now is Ivory Coast. Yeah. Why? Because they extracted ivory from it. There's the Gold Coast, the Slave Coast, the Grain Coast, mm. the uh, Rice Coast. Because different people had different staple goods that they were skilled uh, uh, at, at utilizing. And for the United States, rice was much more valuable than sugar because you can't grow good sugar in the United States. But rice was big in the, in the Carolinas. Well, I, heard, I once heard a story that um, Europeans didn't know how to make rice. Um, until it was, they've got, they got to, um, Africa or Asia and Asia showed them the way to actually make rice. Like it wasn't a, rice was not a staple for a large part of European history until they got there. And then when they got to the, the United States, it was such an easy staple to manufacture that, um, that's why the boon in rice dietary consumption grew because yep. they were doing like correct 
it, it's not easy, but it's very profitable. Okay. Uh, you know, given the uh, amount of acreage and then the yield that you can get from that. But yeah, I, and, and going back to Marco Polo, rice had been introduced, but again, growing it in Europe is that it just doesn't work in a, in a climate that doesn't have some kind of uh, warm, tropical, humid. That's what it was. I couldn't remember. What, right. it, was the, it was a climatary um, yeah. problems, why they could not yeah. grow rice in Europe and yeah. why it was. So even if it had been introduced, they couldn't, they couldn't grow it in abundance until right. they access territory. But, you know, uh, in different parts of Africa, they, they all have the staples that we're more familiar with. We think about the Caribbean where, you know, where the sugar or rice or yams or, you know, you know, there's lots, most cultures have a staple starch. Well, you know what people don't realize too, right. Europe, even to this day, is still a huge export economy. Um, yeah. I um, mean, yeah. imports, excuse me, right. imports, imports economy. Like they, they, a lot of their goods are not manufactured within the continent. And mm-hmm. um, it's really a fascinating thought that this line of economic history goes all the way back into the foundation of the transatlantic slave trade of why they had to import so many um, goods, uh, products, uh, metals, whatever, because the land in the in that particular populace did not allow for it to um, create, right? They had to go yeah. outside of the continent in order to have a society. And it really speaks more of a psychological, sociological concept of, you know, the value of your society when you have to continue to go outside to bring things in, right? right. Even, if it's, even if you have it right right there in your own in your own territory, right? That economic yeah. control, yeah, you know, can deplete a resource that must be used for economic purposes, but not used for the local population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, that was a, a thought of mine. All right, so can we move on to the middle passage, or did you want to? Yeah, sure. okay. Yeah. All right, so the middle passage happens. <clears throat> and it's an estimated 20 million Africans along the Gold Coast, Rice Coast, um, you know, Sugar Coast, all that was transported from Africa to the Americas. And what a lot of people don't realize, too, South America actually had the highest import of slaves. It wasn't America or North, North America. It was Brazil you know, South American general that had the highest import. And then um, obviously the Americas and then the islands. So. And again, a a map, if if people have, uh, if your listeners have access to a map, they they just look at geography. I mean, Brazil is way closer to West Africa than the rest of the Americas. And of the slave, the major slave societies we're talking about, the furthest one away is the United States. Yeah. So it stands to reason that the United States is the last one to get into the game. And they also are going to have the least amount in terms of percentage, right, of the numbers of slaves. But yet, because we're here, 
sometimes I run across students who think that all the slaves from Africa ended up in the United States. No, yeah, yeah. But it's it's the it's the it's the centuries of slavery that that damage uh, the continent of Africa, not just the United States. So you know what? Um, it's just, it just really occurred to me. So you look at again the map of you just said something the map of Africa and Angola. You said Angola was the highest had one of the highest proportions of blacks transferred from that region to the Americas. Well, I was thinking it's almost a straight shot from Angola to Brazil. It's, it's, yeah, it is, but they didn't, they didn't actually, they didn't take many Angolans to Brazil because Brazil stuck with sugar Mm. and that was not their primary crop. Gotcha. Gotcha. And Europeans had this thing, you know, that, well, let me throw something out. Is it there was a lot of emphasis on the skill and knowledge of a particular type of slave, not just, um, not just somebody with arms and legs. Right. Right. We oftentimes think of, of slaves that well, they're interchangeable. Well, not really. They actually were grabbed because they were good at something that that particular buyer or seller um, was going to market. And to that end, Angolans were also labeled by many Europeans and Americans as mean and nasty and, and, you know, dangerous. Mm -hmm. But they were so excited about the prospects of great profit, they still kept bringing them in. You've heard of the Stono Rebellion, maybe, or... um, uh, other slave rebellions in and around Charleston, yeah. um, the uh, Denmark Vesey uprising. Mm-hmm. That's, that was a lot of the Angolans and people warned about that in writings at the time, but they wouldn't stop bringing them in because it was always determined that the profits would outweigh the danger. They tried to control it through the slave codes and laws and those types of things. But, you know, when people talk about Marxist history that you're always um, too much emphasis on economics. Man, if, if you're talking about slavery, you, you don't talk about economics, you miss the whole boat. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's an economic um, structure. That was the driving force. So, with the concept of the Middle Passage, um, I'm always, it's just always a tough subject because you think about how bodies were stacked on top of one another. Yeah, and brutal. Brutal, yeah. Brutal is not even right. It's it, the, the the words don't describe, and I guess brutal is the only way we can, it's inhumane. <laughs> they, cause it would, no human should have, uh, should have ever had to experience something to what a lot of those slaves went through. And, a lot of people died on the on the Middle Passage. You had mothers who um, sacrificed, threw their babies overboard the ship uh, because mm-hmm. they didn't want to um, have them experience or grow up in bondage, right? You had uh, people who created... Uh, had, it's weird, because it, it was a, a six-month journey, was it? Is it well... In the beginning, it's going to be much 
longer due to uncertainty of, you know, the patterns. The ships were smaller, didn't have as uh, fast of a, a top-end speed, all these different types of things. Over the centuries, you know, technology just kept getting better and better and faster and faster. So logically, the idea was that then you could, um, you know, take less provisions, add more bodies in, major profit at the end. So in the beginning, sometimes it would take up to eight weeks mm. unless you had a calm wind and you got stuck out in the middle of the ocean, which did happen from time to time, mm-hmm. right? Because briefly, let me, let me ask you to think of this, is that you have to think about total weight in a ship, correct? Yeah. So you have X amount of bodies that your ship can hold, but then you have to take along fresh water. You have to take along food. You have to have a European crew or at least a, a crew of, of people to control the slaves. And that all has to be calculated out. And, and clearly, if something needs to be sacrificed, it's going to be a slave and you could throw some of them overboard. I'm just being you know, obvious here, not trying to be um, you know, dull to the, the indignities of all this. And but as if you can make a faster trip, then you begin to put more and more bodies in over time because that's always going to be your marker of a successful journey. Right. Okay, so maybe in the beginning the ship could only handle maybe two hundred and you assume, quote unquote, assume a fifteen percent loss of slaves, but if you can get a ship big enough and take 600 slaves at a time at a 15% loss, you're going to triple your income. Right. Right. And this is where I keep back. And I always it's, repeat, it's, it's, it's like, you got to understand, the economics. you got to understand these economic incentives. Yeah. I mean, this is you, the only way that you can somehow get to the point at which these were no longer people. These were not individuals. These were not humans. These were, you know, contracts for numbers. Then the middle passage becomes a business opportunity, not the transportation of my uncle, my wife, my son's daughter, or whatever. They dehumanize the whole concept or process. Then we see it after the laws and everything else. But that's really, again, why I keep going back to this idea that if you start all the way back when I talked about gold and Mansa Musa and the eagerness of Europeans, this has always been about what's the economic benefit that I can get from this exchange. And when you don't stifle that and put some kind of humanity into the perspective, you know, that's why all this shit happened. So, the Middle Passage happens. It's an economic um, evaluation of how to uh, shorten up the travel, create more expo- more um, human capital in such a short period of time to the respective areas of South America, Central America, and North America. 
in the, in the West yeah. Indies. Focusing strictly on North America, or do you want to talk about? No, um, no, that's fine. We, yeah, we probably need to get to the U.S. stuff. <laughs> okay, all right. So focusing on North America, um, the start of this uh, slavery really was more or less an indentured, an indentured servitude in early 1500s, right? And they realized that we need to go full throttle, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound type of thing. So let's go ahead and just uh, transfer this over from indentured servitude in order, in order, and in in order to maximize our profits and turn it into full full uh, blown slavery. When this happens, the U.S. economy starts to expand. Because at the time there was, okay. and what was the first? What was the first uh, crop doing? of profit? Why are you giving me quizzes? This is my podcast, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why this you do this? this? Should be common knowledge. Okay, so the, it wasn't it, cotton. It wasn't cotton. No. Um, no. No. I do, 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 do. You want to say? You want to say rice? Or no? It wasn't. Tobacco, right? Tobacco, ah, duh. Right? And again, this is a pet peeve of mine, so I'm going to insert here, is that, you know, dates in in many cases matter. Mm -hmm. Jamestown gets firmly established 1607 with tobacco. Plymouth Rock and the Pilgrims don't happen until 1620. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about the origins of the United States, you're back on my theme that I keep plugging in here. The United States, or what becomes the United States, in this case, the English colonies, get established due to economic profitability. Yeah. Not this religious foundation that people keep wanting to make it sound better later. Right. It wasn't because they were right? ever doing it because... And even the pure... Because the, Jamestown was successful, other groups decided right. to test their luck in the new world with the trigger and the biggest financial benefit of the early colonies was tobacco. You know what's, what's fascinating though is this to your point this whitewashing of history regarding the people who first um, settled here um, in the United States and they were, they were escaping religious persecution. Right? Right. Which was not the case. And in fact, a lot of them, when they came, they were actually, it's a very small group. <clears throat> it was Definitely. a very, very small group. And they weren't really escaping persecution because at that time, Europeans looked at the Puritans as this really weird, extreme Protestant um, religion where they were like, you guys are weird. Uh, you're not, we're not persecuting you. But if you guys want to go to a foreign land and practice your sect of Protestant Christianity, go ahead and do that. Uh, but there's no, there was no real religious persecution of kicking. They were kicked out of Europe. Um, it, they weren't significant enough to get kicked out. Uh, that's what I like to yeah, say, say. The better term is separatist. They just wanted to go off to their own little haven and, you know, be away from anybody who didn't agree with them. Right. It wasn't so much they were forced 
you know, they were canceled, the cancel culture, canceled um, out of Europe, and they had to find somewhere to practice freely. No, no. I mean, that was never not the case. And the narrative that was been propagated around people coming to this country for that is vastly inaccurate. Yeah. Um, so, don't get me don't get me started on that idea of practicing freely. Oh, I mean, because if you if if you were a Puritan or a Congregationalist, you you were not allowed to live in that community. There, there's no freedom about it. Right. If you're a Quaker, they sent you off to the South, and eventually that becomes Pennsylvania. Right. Right. If you're of any other Protestant belief, they sent you off, and most of those early colonies started based off of you know, a particular group sort of planting their little flag and claiming that eventually it becomes identified as a, a new colony, mm-hmm. right? But they were not free to practice. You're only free if you believe what the earlier initial leaders agreed was the state or the colonial religion. Yeah. So, U.S. develops the slavery, and when I say develop, it's called a peculiar peculiar institution for a reason. Uh, do you want to expand upon that, or should I go ahead and keep rocking? Well, I'll just throw something out, and then if you want more specific, is that the United States had learned from watching, if you will, centuries of other activities. Mm-hmm. So Portugal was the primary colonizer of Brazil. They start doing that you know, by 1500 and doing the whole plantation thing. Mm -hmm. Spain gets into the Caribbean, other parts of South America. They are transporting. The Dutch have been doing it for a long period of time. The last major European country to get really involved in all this is England. Right? Mm -hmm. For a bunch of political reasons that we won't deal with here. And therefore, by the time this idea of using African slaves in the English colonies, they've watched 300 years of trial and error, and they know how this is, how it should work. Mm-hmm. And one of their primary uh, lessons that are learned is don't bring in more than we are, because then you're going to have uprisings, rebellions, runaways, more problems. And that was always sort of invested in much of the rules and laws of what will become the United States is that black people should not outnumber white people. <laughs> right? Right. If, if they had been first, they wouldn't have known that, maybe. Right. Or wouldn't have thought about it as quickly. Right. But when people <clears throat> say, well, the United States didn't have these major uprisings and rebellions, well, that was sort of lessons learned over time, where you have in Jamaica and in <clears throat> San Domingue and, and Haiti, all those areas, you know, you had these major problems. Well, that's because black people sometimes outnumbered the whites four or five times to one. Mm-hmm. Now, is that necessarily true, though, as far as, you know, because black people in the South at one point, um, especially during the 17th century and early 18th century, they outnumbered white people in the South. Black Only only by in a county or local area, not if you went to an entire state or a colony. Okay. All right. Yeah. 
And therefore, that's why when you have something happen, you could call on the state excuse me, state militia, and suddenly you'd have you know hundreds, if not thousands, of armed white men that would rally, and it might take them a little while to get there. But that that was that was built into the the structure of slavery in the United States was you know numbers game was was known by that time. Yeah. All right. So they create what's called the peculiar institution of slavery, and I want to set the context here because, as we stated, slavery actually was not created in the U.S. We know that, and was. Um, was actually, yes, you hear the, oh, well, there were slaves in Africa, and, blah, 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 and there were slaves in Europe, and why does America always get tagged with the bag of slavery and, yeah. you know, things of that nature? Uh, you know, the the, pick, the, the quick, um, you know, differentiating uh, uh, idea of slavery in those other places in, there, in Africa and in Africa and Europe and whatnot was that especially in Africa, it was people could work themselves off the debt and they right. were included, included within the family. What America start, yeah. started to do, I'd see your point and you continue to make this point was they literally looked at them like human capital and like through the economic structure of it. And they were not humans so much as they were product. And when right. you treat something like a product, um, you can, dehumanize them and um, treat them and, and discard them in any which way because that's how you're supposed to view them. And I, actually, the concept of Darwinism is really developed around this time. Um, Darwinism, it's still a concept that people use as as a idea of, uh, of showing <clears throat> what growth or showing the uh, um, valuation of evolution and Darwinism was a was a huge bigot who created a concept of and why black people were less than than whites and he used a he first he started off with animals and then he tried to you know use his <laughs> bad scientific take and apply that to humans and say that the black, the black brain was less advanced than the white brain, and therefore, ergo, uh, we can do what we need to do with them because they're not humans. You know. Um, let, let me rephrase that. What you're saying is slightly different, and you can debate on that a little bit. Is that people, you know, look at Darwinian theory. But the practices that he uh, writes about had been going on for a long period of time. He just sort of catalogs it and puts it into a package that makes sense to the usefulness of the of what had been going on period of time, right? right. Meaning that Darwin doesn't write his Origin of Species until 1859. Okay. Now, there have been Darwinian practices on varieties of people around the world long before Darwin writes his origin of species. So the fact that he puts it into a scientific justification quote unquote air is a lot science. different. Right. And 
you know, and then, but then people start to use the phrase, oh, well, that's Darwinian, mm-hmm. right? So he catalogs it. He doesn't, he doesn't really invent it. Right. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So, uh, and one, one quick comment also is that a, a process that takes a quite a long time to kind of build through is that I try to get students to think and remember that slavery is not the same everywhere and used in the same way that we use that term today. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you, you, you could, uh, on the continent of Africa and other places, maybe work your way up or out of slavery. Yeah. Right? That's why the word slavery really is not an African word at all. That, that's the word that comes from Europe because of the Slavs that were subjected under other Europeans and slavery is a European term that they utilized before all this stuff coming down to the continent of Africa. Right. In Africa, the equivalent word would be bond service, hmm. an obligation owed. Right? And the more, more modern term that we might think of today is we hear about families that might sell their daughter or their son for some money or cash to somebody to work for them ostensibly for X number of years. Mm-hmm. But that's much closer to the idea of indentured servitude. It doesn't make it any better or any nicer. It's just a different you know, uh, a contract right. Right, for that. But bond servant is much more the term that was used. It's used in the Bible. Um, and we know that Joseph, children of Israel, sold, uh, sold into slavery. Again, the words used interchangeably there. But Joseph can work his way up into a position of prestige and preeminence in Egypt. Why? Because he has skills. He has useful talents. And that would happen uh, in much of the slavery that we know about with Mansa, Musa, and those kind of kingdoms. They clearly were superiors and inferiors, but it it wasn't identified by race and it was not considered to be permanent. Right. So, all right, so now we're in Mrs. Slavery, and here's what I want to do, Professor. I want to actually, because we're on an hour here, and I want to go ahead and give a break. So we're going to cut this program, and then we're going to start back up with the part two, okay? Got you. Yeah, and then so, you know... um, you know, hold on for a moment. We're just going to go ahead and uh, close out this section because right now we're on slavery and we just got out of Africa and we're, we got out of the Middle Passage. And I want, um, you know, people to continue and uh, listen, but I also want them to <laughs> uh, get a break here. So we're going to label this one part one of the Black History Podcast. And with that being said, I want to thank everybody to for um, listening on, you know, this portion of it. Uh, continue to listen to part two. We're going to have uh, Dr. Pearson on continually. We're going to talk about uh, not only slavery, but we're going to get into, um, I guess, the U.S. development and how black history uh, really was uh, started to really develop, or African-American history really started to develop and 
Um, we'll wa- walk into obviously the civil rights era. So uh, stay tuned. If not, uh, listen to part part two, and thank you for listening to part one. Also, and share the podcast. Continue to share it. Continue to uh, you know uh, post about it, and let me know your thoughts on on part one. So with that being said, we're going to ride out to uh, part two. So 